Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is the darkest day of the superstitious calendar, Friday, November 13th, 2020. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me, as always, senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. Executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. And uh, associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so what do we want to talk about? Uh, I note I note that um, every story I read says Trump uh, Trump's incandescent anger at Fox News uh, largely resides in its early call of the state of Arizona on on uh, election night, uh, which was not followed by anybody but AP until yesterday when the other networks uh, finally called Arizona for Biden. Um, so let's get this straight. So Fox got it right. It called Arizona early and was correct. And um, uh, Arnon Mishkin, the uh, decision desk head, uh, came on the air and said, there's no mathematical way for Trump to catch up. And it turned out he was right. So does this mean that Trump can now stop being so angry at Fox News? <laughs> well... I don't think that's the root of his anger. This was also pretty frustrating for me because they called it on election night. Fox and AP called it on election night. And the universe of sort of polling hobbyists um, descended on them for being, within 48 hours, descended on Fox News for being too ambitious with its, uh, its early call. But they were right. So they were right at the wrong time, or they shouldn't have been right when they were right. I mean, it's not as though they ever reversed the call. I'm sitting in a district where a call was reversed. They called my district in New Jersey 7th, which is um, Tom Malinowski, representative, Democratic representative, Tom Malinowski, first-term Democrat in a swing district versus um, Tom Keene Jr. And that district was called that night of the election. And it shouldn't have been. Why? Because this is a Republican-leaning district, and Republicans turn out on election day in strong numbers. And in New Jersey, they only got to vote provisionally. And New Jersey wasn't even going to count the provisional election day ballots until a week later. And so you had meaning, to- by the way, meaning, by the way, let's specify this. New Jersey wasn't going to count the election day ballots. <laughs> let's just make it straight because the election day Sometimes. ballots. You sound always, surprised about New Jersey. John. New Jersey wasn't going to count the ballots cast on election day unless the margins made it necessary. Right. This is okay. another one that has dominated. This is a digression, but this has dominated the, the commentary class, which has Republicans in control of upper Midwestern states like Michigan and Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, deliberately made it difficult to count votes on Election Day. As though that's unique, as though that's something that no one else ever does, as though no Democratic led state has ever screwed something up. Um, I'm sitting in one. You're supposed to get your election day ballot in the mail. Everybody was supposed to vote by mail. I never got it. Lord knows how. That's not supposed to happen, right? New Jersey has never screwed something up. It's inconceivable. But somehow they managed it this time around. So now all the election day votes are coming in. And all of a sudden, they just got really, really close in New Jersey 7th. It still remains close. Democrat is, is up by about a point and a half. His lead is shrinking to the point where New York Times had to reverse the call. Others had to reverse the call. So it's just sort of up in the air now. That's screwing something up. What the Fox decision desk did on Arizona wasn't screwing anything up. It was prescient. It was doing the math, and they did the math right. So I just don't understand the gripe 
at the at decision desk, much less AP. And AP doesn't get half the frustration that Fox decision desk gets, which tells you a lot about the honesty of the complaints. Right. Well, well, Fox did get one thing wrong on election night, right? It, it said that Democrats were going to win five to 10 seats in the House, and they are now on track to lose eight to 10 to 12 or something like that. So it's not like they didn't make a bad call. But note that this is not about the call that making a bad call that seemed to go against uh, Republicans in that way. It's just that they called Arizona in a way that made Donald Trump feel bad. Yeah, it's about not having faith. You know, they were, they were, what are you doing? You were supposed to you're supposed to be pulling for us here. Well, isn't there also there's a weird thing going on right now if you follow uh, media coverage closely, which all of us do, but I know not all Americans do, and that's that. We Trump has not really been out there doing much. He's been on Twitter. He's been sending his surrogates out. But there's no way for them to craft a consistent narrative. So on the one hand, you have people saying he's bunkered in the White House. He's staging a coup. Look what he's doing at the, at the Pentagon. Look at all this activity that's clearly authoritarian. On the other hand, you have people saying he's not talking to anyone about anything that's going on in the news. There was a tropical storm. There were some American soldiers who died in a training exercise. He's not doing even the day-to-day job. He's just sitting there licking his wounds. So like, which is it? Is he, is he staging an elaborate coup? Is he, is he, you know, uh, licking his wounds? It's just, it's, I think a a good example of the flailing we're going to see for a couple months that we've been discussing when this very powerful, uh, uh, person who has been gold for the media is no longer as important as he used to be. And it's, it's kind of entertaining, but it's also annoying, like especially the authoritarian coup stuff. That's the thing that Christine, you flagged a post for us and you should talk about it. That's like, you know, this is the Republicans, especially the Republicans who are indulging these (laughs) instincts on the Democrat, on the Republicans part, there's it's creeping authoritarianism. It's just more creeping authoritarianism. I mean, you have to admit at this point that Republicans really stink at authoritarianism. They have allowed their opposition to dominate the press and the polls for four years. You're doing despotism really poorly. Yeah. Meanwhile, we have, as, as we talked about yesterday, we have Andrew Cuomo sort of airily declaring that people can't have more than 10 other people in their house. That's authoritarianism. I mean, let's let, let's get this straight. You know, uh, Donald Trump not wanting to exercise the the levers or, you know, or pull the levers of power in the last two months of his presidency because he's, you know, in a funk and just wants to sit either watching TV or going on the golf course or trying to think of what to do next rather than, you know, I don't know, invade Georgia. I mean, he could invade. I, I don't mean, I mean, our Georgia. Not, <laughs> well, but not, this not the place that, 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 that Putin invaded. I mean, he could invade Georgia. He could bomb you know, he could bomb Wisconsin. I mean, you know, there there are things he could do. I mean, <laughs> well, know, the, or do the, something, right? As opposed to just like having his MAGA people fire people who were in, who in the administration who were deemed, in, for some reason or other, insufficiently loyal to MAGA for the last two months of the administration, which is you know incredibly punitive, obviously, because they were going to lose their jobs on January twentieth anyway. Yeah. Well, the, the the authoritarian thing is interesting to me because it's I mean, it's obviously been a consistent theme throughout his presidency. But the uh, the Washington Post, the, the piece that Noah mentioned is the Washington Post story that if you which is perfect example of how the media gets clicks 
uh, for the headlines and very few people likely read the actual details of the story because it basically says, you know, there's this worrisome rise in authoritarianism that can be that, that can be tracked, you know, by big, especially with Republicans. So if you start reading and there are charts, there are kind of, you know, charts showing this. So, my God, there's data. But the data comes from a survey of 600 political scientists across the across the globe, all of whom readily admit that their definitions of things like illiberalism are very loosey goosey. So, I mean, but the headline is shocking. And you know that it's going to rocket around Facebook and social media with people going, my God, look at this. Rising authoritarianism is our new the Republican Party is going to replace Trump as the authoritarian menace or they're going to attempt to do that. Um, which, of course, is also a convenient narrative if you're trying to flip the Senate special election in a few weeks. Right. Well, so Tom Edsel, uh, who writes a, a weekly column for The New York Times that has been uh, mostly pretty great about sort of uh, deeper academic, less partisan studies of politics and what they tell us, has a really bad column this week um, in which he uh, talks to various academics about what what's Trump up to here? What you know in the in the in the aftermath of the election? What what is going on? And um, uh, where we where we find uh, some of these people that he's talking to, like James Kloppenberg, a history professor at Harvard, is that all Trump is really doing is fulfilling the mandate that the Republican Party has had since FDR. Okay, so he locates Trump. <laughs> who probably couldn't tell you what FDR looked like, you know, and it probably knows by now which party FDR was in, but it might not even have known that, you know, in 2015. So Kloppenberg says this, quote, many conservatives considered the New Deal a repudiation of the laissez-faire dogmas they claimed were written into American life. They were wrong about that, as a generation of progressives had shown for decades before FDR's election. But from Goldwater and Reagan through Gingrich to the present, many Republicans have viewed deviations from what they consider the gospel of free market capitalism as heresy. Of course, there has never been anything remotely resembling a free market in the United States. State, local, and federal governments were involved in daily life from the nation's first days. But the fantasy of unrestrained capitalism has endured, as is the strategy of condemning as un-American anyone who dares to suggest otherwise. Given Trump's four years of hate-mongering and his stubborn refusal to acknowledge reality— his behavior since the election is to be expected. What? <laughs> okay, so so Trump, who actually came to power as a critic of laissez-faire capitalism, in in the terms that this this genius from Harvard lays out, right? He was against free trade, uh, hatred of NAFTA, wants tariffs, uh, you know, wants large infrastructure spending and this and that then comes to power doesn't really govern that way except on the margins uh first of all this is a false description of you know laissez-faire market capitalism in right. a, i'm sure he but, wouldn't regard republicans criticizing democrats for embracing socialism as a straw man yeah anyway um what does the party's embrace of unrestrained laissez-faire capitalism have to do with trump's authoritarianism Capitalism Would you like and authoritarianism to... go hand in hand in the adult brain. Okay, so uh, Christopher Ingram's piece in the Washington Post on this uh, 600, you know, political scientist thing, it really does get us right back to uh, Bill Buckley saying that he'd rather be governed by the first 
500 names in the in the Boston phone book than by the faculties of the of the Ivies. And that was, of course, you know, back in 1952 or whenever it was, he published God and Man at Yale. So, uh, you know, plus a change, as we say. Um, but is it but but is that kind of analysis um, unwittingly stupid or or is it it's um, it's tactical? In, in its in its in what it gets wrong, right? I mean, I, I don't I don't think is it it's surely an expression of ignorance, or it's 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 just trying to conflate a whole bunch of nasty things to make to make people believe that that this is the case. It's not knowing. The whole idea is bad, right wing bad. All right wing mm-hmm. things are all the same as all other right wing things, and therefore right. are bad. Like there is a, apparently there's a documentary starting this weekend on Showtime called The Reagans that is a, you know, denunciation of Ronald Reagan, like a full-throated four-part denunciation of of Ronald Reagan by a documentarian whose most notable previous work was about Studio 54. So you you can really tell how, you know, deep and uh, serious and studious this documentary is likely to be. And it's one of these stories that tells the, it's one of these documentaries that tells the story of how Reagan led directly to Trump and how do we know this? Because Reagan, you know, opened his campaign in 1980 in uh, for 19 in Mississippi, and that he did that, and he got the Ku Klux Klan's endorsement, and he gave a speech in Philadelphia, Mississippi, in which he mentioned states' rights, and so the whole thing was a dog whistle about racism, and then you know, yada yada yada, we get to Trump, right? So here's Reagan, uh, a a wildly pro-immigration president who signed amnesty into law and therefore became, you know, he's too sainted on the right to be sort of like held totally accountable for having signed Simpson Mazzoli into law, but a man who, who never said a harsh word about an immigrant ever, who, you know, spoke about American, you know, freedom and justice and all of that in, in very specific terms but, you know, didn't like welfare cheating. And so apparently if you mention welfare cheating, uh, that, that itself, you know, means that you lead directly to children in cages put there by Barack Obama in 2014, but blamed on Trump in 2017. I mean, that, that's what I'm talking about, that basically you just have a kind of general liberal establishment effort to say everything we dislike that particularly now is anathema, we can just track back. So so this documentary by Matt Turnauer tracks it to Reagan. Kloppenberg is tracking it to free marketeers who didn't like Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Um, you know. There's something of this, I think, um, at work among the hardcore never-Trumpers, by the way, the diehards too, right? Because they've renounced some of them their um conservative leanings entirely right because the idea is like they didn't they didn't realize that that what they were into and what and what they were about um ideologically was was led up led up to this they that their their blind spots are are what led them are what led the right to trump and they're and therefore the right is bad all altogether now right all of it is a stalking horse for racism yep Free market economics, individual liberty, all of that is, you know, just a 
Yeah. But the country's premier white supremacist endorsed Biden in this election. Richard Spencer endorsed Biden. <laughs> I mean, I it, I feel like there's a there's a and you could talk, we could talk about Woodrow Wilson for a very long time when it comes to race and nobody on the left likes to, they want to change all the names like my kids high school actually is going to get renamed because it's Woodrow Wilson High School. They'll change the names, but do they really want to talk about what those the, the legacy of those policies for their own party? Of course not. So this is why I take these Republican, you know, that Reagan bad. Uh, I mean, how many historians, public intellectuals, and historians have we heard say this is the most authoritarian, worst presidents we've we've ever had in this country? I mean, it's just it's insulting, an assault first of all in your discipline, and second of all, insulting to every one of your audience members who might know a little bit about American history too. Yeah, look, I mean, the memory holding is amazing, right? I, I, look, I, I'm not speaking here holding a brief for, you know, the Republican Party. But um, the party of segregation and Jim Crow was the Democratic Party, not the Republican Party. Uh, the Dixiecrat senators were Democrats. They were not Republicans. All of them. All of them. Uh, the people who sent rival state electors to represent their state governments uh, because because, uh, black people did not get a vote were Republicans in, you know, in the 60s. That is what, so this notion that, you know, we're going to go back in time and not highlight the fact that the coalition that elected and reelected and reelected Franklin Delano Roosevelt was made up in part of, you know, openly racist Southern former members of the Klan. Right. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah, the Senate, yeah. The Senate um, majority leader or minority leader, Robert Byrd was the, from Western, was the Klegel or the Klaxon or whatever the hell he was of the Ku Klux Klan. I mean, so I don't think that we need to, um, we need to locate the Democratic Party's current uh, problems in Robert Byrd, who is you know long dead, and was it was a long time ago that he was a member of the Ku Klux Klan. But you know what sauce for the goose is sauce for the gander. Also, if you're going to play this game, and the entire Northeastern Republican Party, the liberal republic, the liberal wing of the Republican Party, whose last standing member is Susan Collins, who just won an election by nine points. That that part that rump of the Republican Party existed because of segregation. Liberal Republicanism in the Northeast was was largely the province of liberals who would not be a part of the Democratic Party because it was making common cause with racists and segregationists. Also, this line of attack is completely at odds with the other popular line of attack, which is that... Um, Republicans have become so extreme that now they would be unrecognizable to their ideological forebears, right? That, you know, I, I understand if you used to be some sort of conservative, but today it's, it's a different story. It's, a, it's, it's an unrecognizably extreme um, position to hold. And, and the, party would, the party has gone so far to the right that, that they've left the reservation. Which is it, you know? Is it is has it has it always been this terrible thing? 
that that one goes hand in hand. And I've had I've actually had this argument with very dear friends many times over. I've just stopped having it with them. But it goes hand in hand with the but the Democrats have also become much more left wing. And, you know, in recent years, and they'll say, but the Republicans made them do it. It's, they had to respond. <laughs> it just goes round and round. <laughs> OK, so getting back to, you know, the fact that um, the Biden incoming Biden administration and the Biden transition is feeding us so little that the entire conversation continues to revolve around Trump. Um, I can't tell whether this is canny because really the country is going to be glad to to see the back of him when when January 20th rolls around or whether they sort of are locked in their own make no news, be quiet approach that got them where they're going and they can't really transition into the fact that they are kind of like going to be leading the country. Well, there's another thing is that the press is just so apathetic about the Biden administration. And they're they're really trying to make something out of Kamala Harris, but it's not working because she's uniquely ill-suited. Can to I interrupt to point out? No, sure. Can I just point out to note uh, that they're calling it the Biden-Harris administration a lot. This is bugging me. Just like nobody called it the Obama-Biden administration. Anyway, go on. Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, but that is symptomatic of, of the, they're just ennui and apathy about what the, the future holds and the lack of any cult around this guy, which I think is one of the value propositions of the Biden administration, that nobody has particularly strong feelings one way or the other about this guy at all. Um, which is actually going to be a departure from our last 12 years of politics and probably a welcome one. Nevertheless, um, you see this dynamic at work in the Democratic Party now where you have many of its members going to war with a lot of the orthodoxies that were predominant over the course of 2020, most notably the what we call woke, the social um, progressive politics, the, the so negative social leveling, downward social leveling of particular groups, um, that sort of thing, a lot of Democratic members are very uncomfortable with, and now vocally so. Um, and you have folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez making a big display of her frustrations with uh, Joe Manchin because Joe Manchin said we're not going to defund the police. And by the way, that was something that even Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said we didn't really mean. It's just sort of subject to interpretation. And if you're in the in the in-group, you get what we really mean here. And if you don't, you're just not savvy enough. So I guess she really did mean it the whole time, and we were actually on to her the whole time. Um, but they are going to war with themselves over this, and the press, meanwhile, is going in the opposite direction. They're going more woke. They're investing in more of their their uh, woke uh, figures, their woke voices, putting them in positions of predominance and, and authority. And there's going to be a real di- a real conflict there in this this dichotomy in 2021 over the direction the Democratic Party is headed in. Press will probably win that argument. And then we enter 2022 with what Abigail Spanberger warned would be dynamics that will destroy the Democratic uh, sliver of a Democratic majority in the House. And because of redistricting, will probably have negative effects farther down the ballot, too. No, no lessons are, appear to have been learned. But Noah, can I ask you a question? What does it mean that if the press wins that argument? What does that look like? It, 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 it does that you're just that you're afraid to offend them. Just that you're afraid to say, look, maybe we shouldn't defund the police. Mm -hmm. Look, maybe it's not a great idea to get rid of anti-discrimination language in state constitutions. Maybe we really should be looking at individuals as individuals and not members of a collective tribe whose grievances span generations and have to be addressed cosmically and karmically. Maybe that's not great. 
Well, it's also and saying that out loud is going to be anathema. There's a good example already of what it will look like in on steroids in the years to come, which is if you look at Minneapolis and the the debate over you know the, the city council there, which is very progressive, very woke, uh, voting to defund police. You look at the number of police who've just left the force. There now, two things have happened in Minneapolis this summer since this summer. One is that the homicide rate has spiked and so has the violent crime rate in the city. The other is that they're desperately asking and begging officers from other jurisdictions to come and work in Minneapolis. They are desperate for police now. And all of the people who were interviewed in these, you know, gauzy, soft focus, woke pieces by the New York Times are now living with the crime that that a lot of people could have warned them was likely to come in this situation, but they didn't want to cover that angle because they would be seen as racist or they would be seen as against the protest. And that's what happens is that these stories, which actually could have had a half-life where people learned about how law enforcement actually works in this country, never get written or they get written six or eight months later and dumped and nobody really pays attention. So if we put aside the ideological controversies, then there are the practical real-world controversies that the Democrats and the Biden administration are going to own, like the pandemic. And uh, Supreme Court Justice Alito yesterday gave a speech before the Federalist Society in which he said that the pandemic is, quote, we have never before seen restrictions as severe, extensive, and prolonged as those experienced for most of 2020. Think of all the live events that would otherwise be protected by the right of freedom of speech, live speeches, conferences, lectures, meetings. Think of worship services, churches closed on Easter Sunday, synagogues closed for Passover or Yom Kippur. Think about access to the courts or the constitutional right to a speedy trial. Trials in federal courts have virtually disappeared in many places. Who could have imagined that the COVID crisis would have served as a sort of constitutional stress test? And in so doing... It has highlighted disturbing trends that were already present before the virus struck. Now he says he's not speaking as a he's speaking as a judge, not as a policymaker. He's not even talking about the constitutionality of most of this. But I think what he is alluding to is the fact that there there is in American society a hunger to curtail rights. Now liberals will tell you that that is immigrants' rights or trans rights or stuff like that. We will tell you, and I think this is what Alito is referring to, is more basic rights than the rights that are granted to specific populations. Speech, uh, assembly, um, you know, speech really in particular. So we have the case of the coronavirus, the two members of the coronavirus task force, Zeke Emanuel and this guy whose name I can't remember, who is the chair of the public health committee at the University of Minnesota, both, one of them literally saying we need to shut the economy down for six weeks, shut the country down for six weeks to kill off the virus. Uh, that's what's going to matter now. I mean, we on the right are making a big stink about this. The left seems to be dropping or even intoning it sort of like as though this is a good message. Uh, Biden is going to own the policies of the United States. This is the transition that people are having difficulty making by saying, "What? Is, where's Trump? Why isn't Trump talking about the virus? What about this? What about that? In two months, this is on him, and he's going to have 4,000, 5,000 appointees in the executive branch, political appointees in the executive branch, and they're going to say things, and they're going to be enacting policies. They're going to retract 
Title IX protections uh, that were put in place and various other things that they can do by executive order. And that's when we will see not, we don't even have to go as far as sort of like local defund the police issues, even though those were very, apparently politically very successful. The Democratic Party has had four years to go left because it has had no power and therefore has not really had to reckon with the consequences of the positions and policies that it, it, it puts up. We saw this with Trump. Trump said, I'm going to put in a Muslim ban. He put in a Muslim ban. Five billion people rioted and you know came out in demonstrations, and he lost the House in 2018 based on the momentum that was created by the political blowback to the Muslim ban. Well, I don't know what Biden's going to do on energy or on some of the on racial justice issues and stuff like that, but he will be the president and there will be consequences for what he does and for the things that people say in his name. And we've, we've already just started seeing that this week, like commonsensically. What are people going to think when they hear these egghead professors come out and say, no, you just, everyone stay inside for another six weeks and you won't have work. And we'll just, we'll throw money at you from the federal government to like keep you going. As though that's the way small businesses work or that's the way industry works. So that, that I think that's, the controversies are easy to understand as a, you know, rallying issue. Uh, now, actually, they're going to be policies. And that's going to be interesting. Uh, and they're not going to be able to say, oh, Trump, 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 Trump. Look what Trump's doing. Now, they, they'll try. You know, I mean, my, my general view is that what the liberal media will do, they will find a state legislator in Idaho who says something racist, and that person will become the most famous person for three days. They'll find a Facebook post that was put up by a police chief in, you know, 1993, who is now the police chief of a town that there's a controversy in, and he'll become the most famous person in America for three days. And that's how that'll work. But I, I don't know that that's going to... But also on, yeah. on the larger policy issues like uh, another shutdown and, and um, uh, you know, the, anything COVID-related, there's going to be this blanket effort that says, look, we're just digging out of the mess that Trump created. This, we, wouldn't even be, we wouldn't even be facing this dilemma if we had had competent leadership when this crisis hit. And, you know, it's an open question now about what the effect of the virus was on Trump and the Republicans politically. By which I mean, if Biden ends up winning by four or four and a half percentage points, which I think is pretty much where this is headed, might not even get to four and a half. um, We have literally no reason to believe that the virus was anything but a kind of thing that froze Trump in his tracks and gave them something else to talk about. We do not know. There was an outbreak in Wisconsin, you know, in the three weeks, four weeks before the election. The polling said that Biden was up by nine and he won by half a point in Wisconsin. The one real world case we have of a virus spike and a state population responding to the virus strike, you know, in, in spike in real time, in a contested state that was one of the tipping point states, did not play out the way 
that we thought it was, or that you know the 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 wise minds thought it was going to. We do not know that the virus worked politically for for Biden or for the Democrats, except to the extent that it changed the nature of the conversation and did not allow Trump to kind of go all in with a 2020 message of, you know, economic growth and opportunity. Does anybody disagree with that? I, I think that's right. And I, I think to add to that, Trump also himself became distracted by the virus once he caught it and couldn't shut up about his own personal triumph over COVID and turned everything, you know, into his own little narcissistic uh, bloviation. And that did distract. I mean, that must have frustrated his campaign to no end because the economic news was good, and we had, and, the, and it was backed up by the data, and people felt that it had been good, and there was a way to thread that needle politically for him, and he couldn't do it. Um, and I, I, I still go back to his personality, which is the, the the which we've many times talked about. The chaos agent part is all people cared about, and chaos agent during a pandemic. I think in that sense, the pandemic hurt him. Um, right. But, but yeah. I'm saying that the Biden message on the pandemic, which is oh, which message? is a <laughs> no, which is a that this is all Trump's fault to say right. you know, implicitly that right. you know if we'd done better, we would have you know fewer people would have died, right? Right? Uh, which is you know a, a bleak and dark thing to think, and I think is unfair. But nonetheless, there it is. Obviously, we could have done better. By the way, doing better could mean that fewer people. Sh- you know, I, I, it, we'll see, but. Um, I'm saying that his messaging, which is a national mask mandate and this and that and the other thing, we don't know that that helped. That could have hurt. That could have hurt in some places. Well, there was there was an interesting thing here in D.C. There have always been um, people who oppose any war and they'll put up signs that, that have body counts of soldiers. Right. So when the pandemic really, really uh, gripped the country. I, there were a couple of homes I would see dotted with signs that were keeping a tally of the COVID deaths. And I think trying to see those things as similar, which Biden certainly encouraged, like under his watch, all these people died. I don't think most Americans saw it that way. I don't think they made that same equation because I, I really don't think people blamed Trump for the virus. They just didn't trust his handling of it. And that's a distinction that makes a difference, I think. Right. Again, I think we need to remember that this election took place on a battlefield of relatively few people, you know, at, relative to the aggregate number of votes that are going to be cast in nor- north of 160 million. Like an astonishing, this polarization is astonishing. It it accounts for, you know, most of the votes that were cast. So there was a field of 10 or 15 million people in the middle, the ones who will have decided the election, who didn't know who to choose, right, up until the up until the time that people came out to vote, if it was even 15 million, which would be about 10% or 9% of the, of, of the overall total. And if they didn't know how to vote, then the messages weren't the issue, right? In the end, it comes down to feeling. It's not, well, you know, and all I'm saying is that there might be an inclination among the Biden people to overread uh, the results as specific endorsements of his specific policy approaches and he could get slapped upside the head pretty fast. You know, it's like uh, Clinton came into oh, Clinton. Clinton was not in the same position as, as Biden. Clinton was a 43% president. Biden will be a 51% president. That's a huge difference. But or let's take George W. Bush. George W. wins his second term with 51%. And out of nowhere, 
decides that his mandate is to reform Social Security and basically cripples his second term by forcing his party to take up an issue that he did not run on and that they and that nobody in the country really wanted to face. Good governance, though, it might have been, right? And so there is a history of politicians misreading their mandates or misreading the meaning of the election. And if Biden really thinks, I don't know if he does, and I don't know what they're going to do, but if Biden really thinks that, you know, telling Americans that they have to go into hibernation for six weeks and not see anybody in the depths of winter uh, is going to be a message that will resonate with a vast majority of Americans, I think he will be deluding himself that he had a ready audience for this message because of people who hated Trump. In the absence of Trump and just him, there are people who are going to say, I don't, I, don't do this to me. Well, we have some evidence that that's not his inclination, right? During the campaign, he was asked whether he would shut down the country. And he said, well, yeah, I mean, if that's what scientists recommend, as though he had any authority to do that. I mean, he was all over the map. At one point, he was asked whether or not this mask mandate that he was talking about was constitutional or he had any authority along those lines. And he said, no, not really. But I'll get everybody together in a room and try to make them do it. And if they don't do it, it's on them, which is the right answer. But the, you know, the shut the country thing down created enough of a furor so that during the final debate, he was asked again about this and said, no, you know, point blank, no, that there would be no national shutdown, even though that's not in his authority to do so. He said, also, I don't necessarily favor it. So it would be a reversal of something he already said on the campaign trail. Right. And that he knows that it's not a popular. Right. But look, let's put it this way. What Joe Manchin, the senator from West Virginia, the most most right-leaning senator in the Democratic caucus, and uniquely powerful, possibly, uh, because he will represent either the 50th vote or the 49th vote or whatever, um, said in, in the in the in the advent uh, uh, the possibility that Democrats are in a whip hand position, uh, he will not vote to pack the court. He will not vote to eliminate the filibuster, and effectively then also implicitly saying he will stand against the imposition of a party-wide left-wing shift into, you know, out-and-out activism, which is great. And, you know, it's great news for the country and all of that, but it, it puts renewed focus on Biden because if the, if the, uh, the left in Congress isn't going to go nuts, what the Biden administration does and what its agencies do and what people like that do is going to be more of the focus of the common conversation. And the woke people are going to like what they do when it's woke. And we're going to hate it. And the end result of it is going to be, there's going to be a lot of publicizing wokiness. And I think the results of this election, as Noah's indicating about 2022, suggest that that's suicidal for them. I tell you where, I mean, it's terrible to predict the future, and I, I'm not predicting the future. I am suggesting that this could be a possible outcome. Um, but there's a lot of presidential authority when it comes to energy. And this president has made climate change a unique priority. And what we're witnessing, for example, in California, when it comes to climate change policy, is particularly horrific, um, up to and including 
sort of third world conditions in which you are now supposed to expect rolling blackouts because you can't service these places. There's not enough power. And the city of San Francisco has now made it statutorily impossible for you to run gas lines into new construction. No natural gas, which, by the way, is a bridge fuel, burns a whole lot less CO2, is practically ubiquitous now in this country as a result of horizontal drilling and fracking technology. Um, And and the leading leading reason that American emissions are down 40%. Precisely, yeah, Yeah. up to down to 1985 levels from fossil fuel um, power generation. So all good things, but not in the eyes of absolutist climate change fanatics. And if Joe Biden Biden has catered to them throughout the campaign and they are expecting a return on their investment, and that return could yield a kind of backlash that I don't think the environmentalist left in particular, but the left generally even can conceive of much less anticipated. I think that's a good point. And I think um, it's uh, given the, the, you know, unwillingness to make predictions. I think it's, it's very likely anyway, um, because as president Biden is going to be itching as every president is to do it, some big thing. Right. And, um, while the campaign was successful um, in that uh, the message was I'm um, sort of anodyne and uh, I represent a return to normal, that's not doing a big thing in office. So there needs to be some actual leap uh, and goal in mind. And that will be either something very wokey or um, the, the environmental by the way, I will not purchase a property without a gas line. Cooking is kind of a hobby, and electric stoves stink. You cannot functionally cook. You cannot gauge your temperatures properly on a range without a gas stovetop. Electric stoves are not a, a, a satisfying replacement for the gas line. So San Francisco is going to have terrible at-home meal <laughs> for the particular you know, future. The other thing is that uh, you have to understand what it's like and what it's like inside conservative administrations also uh, at some points, which is that um, the only vocabulary that you could have inside a Biden administration to resist the spread of these policies is a really dark cynic- and cynical one, right? Which is the yahoos out there aren't going to stand for it and we're going to be screwed in the next election. So we're not going to do it because it's not like they, they don't believe as we don't believe that these measures are the way to, to address this problem. I mean, we will affirmatively argue that these are terrible ways to address a problem. If you believe it is the nightmare problem that people think it is that in fact, what we need is more nuclear power and more fracking, not less and stuff like that. Right. So, so we actually have policy prescriptions that do not require you to go down the California path, but they don't. And so the conversations inside will have, there will be no voice of moderation or reason in energy policy. The only moderating reasonable voice will be, well, these disgusting people outside this building, you know, want their to cook with gas like Noah. And, you, you know, Prius haters, yeah. right? And they well, want to burn okay, coal so and they want to do all these terrible things. And you know what? The problem is 
We won't be able to do other things. So you better just bite your tongue and not do it. And people who are, who believe, who believe in the importance and efficacy of these ideas and policies are not going to be, go, are not going to be comfort, are not going to comfort themselves with the idea that they're helping their party. There's tea leaves that you can read here. The Times previewed possible nominees for uh, Biden cabinet and in energy. It was between, well, there's uh, Elizabeth Sherwood Randall, who is a professor at Georgia Tech, who I don't really know is an Obama administration functionary way down the, the level. But Ernest Benise, who was Obama's energy secretary, was a former nuclear guy. So he's not probably not hostile to nuclear. And Jay Inslee. Washington Governor Jay Inslee, who is a climate change fanatic, kind of a radical, nice guy, sweet guy, but also a radical. So the fault lines are pretty well defined there. If you if those if it really comes down to the two of them, and he goes with, for example, Inslee, assuming he can even be confirmed, um, you know which way he's going to go. Anyway, my my point here is that we are we're still focusing on Trump and Trump and Trump and where's Trump and he hasn't made public appearances and the country is going govern you know presidentless while he sulks and I don't know why they mind I don't know why the why liberals seem to mind that Trump is inactive since they think that everything he does when he's active is evil so they should be happy that he's depressed and sitting and watching TV instead of like wh- wagging their finger it's like. There's literally nothing the guy could, you know, if he does any, if he, you know, he, the fact that he inhales oxygen and exhales carbon dioxide is an evil, you know, whatever. So, um, you know, he doesn't matter anymore unless there is a calamity or a crisis that happens between now and then, which does happen in, 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 uh, transition periods. Um, he doesn't matter. And uh, they're addicted to him, just like the MAGA people are addicted to him. And they're, they, you know, they can't, they can't be quit of him. And, uh, and Biden is going to sit there and, and, you know, if I were him, I'd feed the beast a little more. I'd be making more, I'd be making more policy moves and stuff like that. But as I say, the danger to him and that is that he is going to give us fodder. Give us fodder. He's going to give the right fodder. He is going to give the people who are running in Georgia <laughs> against the two Democrats fodder. Uh, and so, you know, we just don't know how that's going to how that's going to play out. Look, we got to go, but I did want to tell everybody that uh, we're going to have a special guest on Monday. Uh, it's our uh, old friend, uh, TV superstar, and man responsible for a run on khaki pants at the Gap, apparently. Steve Kornacki will be with us too, and we're going to just throw numbers at him randomly and see if he can add them up in his head. That's the, uh, he maybe. can. <laughs> I know he can. I know he can. Although, to be fair, he was using a calculator on his iPhone at some points. But if you guys, if you didn't, uh, I, th- I would guess a lot of people who listen to us don't watch MSNBC, but. Um, Steve's performance in the four days, uh, around, you know, uh, four days of the election and the aftermath was one of the great um, television moments, I don't know, collective moments of our of our time. And uh, put me in mind of a time, and I'll just conclude on this, in 1972 when Boris uh, Spassky and Bobby Fischer were playing 
chess had this world chess match which was like a world it was an event so big in the world that PBS suspended its daytime programming to cover the Fisher Spassy match and they only made two moves in they made like a move every 3 hours i mean that's how crazy but they were both psychotic you know Bobby Fisher was psychotic and you know a nazi like crazy lunatic and and Spassky thought that Americans were beaming you know, radio waves into his head to screw up his moves. I mean, they were both crazy. And there was a guy on on PBS named um, Shelby Lyman who was standing in front of a board, a chessboard, like the simplest set you ever saw. He was just standing in front of a chessboard with pieces, and he had to talk for like three hours. And basically, it was like a master class in how to play chess because he he just – he just stood there and said, well, you could move it this way. That would be the Gabaglocksky defense and the, this defense. <laughs> and if you did this, then you could do that and do the other thing. And it was like an incredible display. He became a huge sensation uh, in America because of this behavior. And that's what happened to Steve Kornacki last week, though we, of course, knew that he was a superstar all along. So we will be hearing from him on Monday. For Noah, Christina, and Abe, I'm John Podhortz. Keep the candle burning.